Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, it is I, your host, Jason Rudy, owner-operator of uh, Sacramento, California-based Desperate Visions Productions, a filmmaking production company owned by yours truly. And uh, right now I'm in uh, sound editing post-production on uh, Emmanuel in Los... I'm sorry, Emmanuel in Sin City and... Um, one other awesome film called Lady Hyde. So, anyways, uh, today we are here for episode 75, film number 10 by the maestro Jess Franco, and that would be Dr. Orloff's Monster. Uh, it's out of uh, Spain and France, 1964. Uh, for this episode, I'm going to kind of combine um, the intro followed by the review. Uh, I did a singular review on this, and I'm going to go with my review and um, uh, Stephen Thor's review. Of course, we get all uh, history and info and all that good stuff from the book of him, of Jess Franco by Stephen Thrower, titled Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema, Jesus Franco. Uh, this one is in Volume 1. So, here we go. Uh, okay, uh, Spain and France, 1964, the original theatrical title in country of origin, El Secreto del Dr. Orloff. Alternative titles, even though this really has no Dr. Orloff in it. Uh, well, actually, let me see. Um, alternative titles in Spain, the ad mat uh, was El Secreto del Dr. Orloff. And we got uh, the French theatrical title, which is the one I saw, The Mistresses of Dr. Jekyll which is actually more on the button. Uh, La maîtresse du docteur Jekyll, uh, French theatrical poster, La maîtresse du docteur Jekyll, uh, Italian theatrical, The Lovers of Dr. Jekyll, La Manti de Dr. Jekyll, uh, Dr. Jekyll's Mistresses, UK, and for the DVD, um, La du Dr. Jekyll, which is kind of cool because you have uh, Dr. Jekyll basically um, and then uh, his uh, killer um, is like uh, Mr. Hyde. So, yeah, interesting. His uh, servant. Anyway, we'll go into that as we go through. Uh, okay, uh, production company on this, Leo Films out of Spain and Eurocene out of Paris. Uh, theatrical distributors, Nueve Films, SA out of Madrid, and Eurocenic out of Paris. Timeline. Uh, shooting date, February 1964. Classified for Spanish release, June 19th, 1964. Uh, played Barcelona. The premiere was uh, February 23rd, 1965, which is pretty cool because actually that'll be about a week after this uh, episode drops. Um, new footage for the French version was filmed in uh, 65, 1965. And then the French visa issued uh, October 15th, 1965, and played France November 17th, 1965. Then it had a U.S. TV screening in Baton Rouge. That's uh, so how it came out here, was on AIP TV. Uh, and that was in March 18th of 1966. And Italy, Arezio, May 31st of 66, and finally Seville, October 1st of 66. It's kind of interesting how uh, the way you see a Jess Franco film in America is through a 
U.S. TV screening. This is interesting. I remember as a kid seeing Alligator when it premiered like a year after it uh, came out on like ABC or NBC or whatever it was in like 81, 82, somewhere around there. And that was like a big deal. So, yeah, it's kind of cool how that used to be back in the day. All right. Uh, theatrical running time. Spain, 89 minutes. And France, 91 minutes. Cast on this fine film. Uh, Agnes Spock plays Melissa, Professor Fisherman's niece. Jose Rubio plays Juan Manuel. Perla Crystal plays Rosa, the cabaret singer. Pastor Serrado plays Inspector Diaz. Marcello Arote Yagarelli plays Professor Conrad Fisherman. Daniel Bloomer plays Carlos Serrano, Rosa's pimp. Juan Antonio Solar plays Siegfried, a witness. Magda Magdalonia plays Rosa's friend. Uh, Manuel Gutien plays Cicero, f- Fisherman's Valet. Uh, then we have, let's see, Hugh Blanco as Andros Fisherman. So this is interesting because I saw the uh, Italian version. They didn't have these last names as Fisherman. It was always Dr. Jekyll and stuff. So this is interesting. Um, okay, Andros is how I knew him. So Andros Fisherman. Uh, Luisa Sala, Ange Ingrid, Conrad's wife. Uh, Julio, Julio Infestiesta, policeman who shoots at Andros in the nightclub. Uh, Ramon Lilio, Emilio, policeman with information about Serrano. Angela Pia plays Opium Den client. Jose Treshko plays policeman investigating necklaces. Uh, Miss Orloff is Milagroso Hilaro. Uh, Francisco Rene, cop with mustache and trilby. Okay, so there is a Dr. Orloff. It must have been the old man. All right, here we go. Okay. Um, first victim, Spanish U.S. version. Julia Chaboso. Chaboso. Javier de Rivera, Dr. Orloff. Okay, must have been the really old man. I didn't catch that in the translation. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Dr. Jekyll would be Dr. Orloff's monster. Andros is Dr. Jekyll's monster, which is Dr. Hyde. Uh, interesting. Uh, okay. Um, Jesus Franco, Fredo nightclub band pianist. And we have uh French version. Okay. Credits director, Jess Franco, story, screenplay, and dialogue by Nicole Franco Gutierrez and Jess Franco, based on a novel by David Kuhn, French prints only. That's the version I saw, French print. Uh, director of photography, Alfonso Nueva, editor, Angel Serrano, um, music, of course, by Daniel White. Really great jazz score on this. This is a nice uh, Daniel White score, actually. A really cool soundtrack. Uh, besides even being a fan of uh, Franco or Daniel White, this is just a cool soundtrack by itself. Uh, let's see. Sec- okay. Um, all right, looks pretty good on that. Just a lot of the French version, dubbing, sound recordist, all that stuff. I'm going to go into all that. All right. Um, I'm going to save the synopsis, of course, for the... You know what? Let's do the synopsis, and then we'll do the production notes, and uh, I'll skip the review part of his and with mine, and kind of go together with that, and we'll go do all the other uh, on-screen cast and crew music locations and all that, and then we'll do the review part last. <clears throat> all right, synopsis. Uh, Melissa, a pretty young uh, Aus- Austrian student, travels to the town of Holfen to spend the Christmas holidays with her aunt and uncle. Ingrid and Conrad Fisherman. Having missed the bus, she meets Manuel, a good-looking Spaniard who offers to drive her there and flirts with her during the journey. 
By the time he drops her off at her destination, the two have become friends and arrange to meet up again. As the fisherman household, the mood is oppressive. Uncle Conrad is cold and incommunicative, while Aunt Ingrid is a bitter, miserable lush. The two clearly hate each other, and their live-in servant Cicero is a giggling lunatic who seems to do almost nothing. The root of the fisherman's dysfunctional relationship is revealed. One night, the year Melissa was born, Conrad caught Ingrid in be- or Ingrid in bed with his younger brother Andros, Melissa's father. Enraged, Conrad killed him, and with the help of theories learned from a certain Doctor Orloff, managed to awaken him as a walking cadaver enslaved by radio control. Conrad now uses Andros to kill various women, mainly nightclub strippers with whom he has been dallying. One night, Melissa is confronted by the reanimated Andros, whom she recognizes as her father from the sole pictures she has of him. The shock sends her into a faint. Conrad uses her collapse as an excuse to forbid Manuel to see her. Nevertheless, the two lovers make contact, and Melissa informs Manuel that something is terribly wrong at the fisherman household. That night, Andros escapes and goes on the run, with Conrad and Cicero in pursuit. Andros commits yet another murder in the Spanish version, then heads for the cemetery where he gazes at his own grave. Conrad recaptures him, then makes him kill again. After visiting Ingrid, Ingrid in her room, causing her to die of shock, Andros attacks Manuel, who has forced entry to the castle to protect Melissa. Before he can kill the young man, the police arrive, and Andros flees into the night. At dawn, Melissa must confront her father and decide whether to help him escape or lure him to his death. All right, production notes. In the Spanish press interview on January 26, 1964, Actually, I kind of jammed over that, but uh, yeah, no, that, that's a, it's it's a really good story, and it's very. Um, this is not my review, but uh, yeah, there's it's there's some meat to it. All right, in the Spanish press interview, uh, Argentina actress Perla Cristel revealed that she was about to begin work on her third film for Jesus Franco, Secret of Doctor Orloff, on January 28th. Joining her two weeks later was her co-star Jose Rubio. Dr. Orloff offered in Brazil, or I'm sorry, in Barcelona on February 23rd of 65. Um, all right, I'm going to skip the review part and go back to that. All right. Uh, Franco on screen, once again, as in Gritos Elenocha, just appears as a nightclub pianist. Uh, he gets an extra scene in the French version, The Matrices of Dr. Jekyll, playing the same character at home with a female friend. Cast and crew. Uh, when Franco's plans to cast Howard Vernon as the villain had to be dropped because the Spanish producers were too tight-fisted to fly him in from Paris, the role fell instead to Marcello Etriota Hogarini, who would go on to appear again in six more Franco films. <clears throat> oh, that's cool, that's the reason why. Uh, Residence of Spies, Diabolical Dr. Z, Attack the Robots, Lucky the Inscrutable, Sedista Erotica, then Blood of Fu Manchu. Born in the Spanish province of Cantabria in 1922, he entered the acting game in 1961 with a small role in Trompa Pera Catalina's. Dr. Orloff's monster was only his second role 
and for the most part of the 1960s alternated between Franco films and numerous Pedro Lagasse projects such as the creepy El, Ro El Rostro de Alicino, 1967. Of greater importance than acting to Hagarel was poetry. He published three collections in his lifetime, uh, Man is Sad in 51, Punishment Treaty in 58, and Fatal Espitelli since 1987. He also penned copious film criticisms, wrote a monograph of the Hollywood director Ruben Mamoulian, and translated Eugene in the Scresos diaries into Spanish. He and Franco reportedly fell out over the censorship of Franco's 99 women at a time when Agaria was serving member of the Spanish censor board. He died uh, in Spain on night, January 7th, 1992. Agnes Spack was the daughter of the Belgian screenwriter Charles Spock, who wrote the screenplay for La Grande Illusions. Uh, the niece of Paul Spock, the Belgian forest minister at the time of filming Dr. Orloff's Monster. And last but not least, sister of Catherine Spock, whose career as an actress surpassed Agnes in number, in number if not in style. Catherine is best known to Eurohorror buffs for her role in Dario Argento's Cat of Nine Tales, but she also appeared in a stylish and fascinating little movie with Betty Davis called The Empty Canvas, directed by Damiano Damani in 1963. Nice. All right. Uh, Co-star Pepe Rubio was born in Lubrin, Almeria in 1931 and died in Madrid. March 15, 2012, after a career in theater and cinema, he became known as the quintessential scoundrel of the Spanish scene, thanks to a slew of roguish performances, the most acclaimed of which was his lead role in Encinor y la Sevenguzia, 1970. Cinematographer Alfonso Nevia was a regular working partner to director Jose Maria Escolarita, having already shot 15 of... Elarita's films before working with Franco and Eva's subsequent contributions to the horror genre include the clunky but endearing Necrophagus, 1971, uh, Escofrido Diabolico, 71, Naked Girl in the Park, 72, and Sexy Cat, 73. Note the Spanish credits attribute the screenplay to Nicole and Jesus Franco. Music. Daniel White's excellent score pads fretfully around the soundstage with footprints uh, of piano and marimba alternating with flourishes of romantic Hollywood strings. The music thus mirrors the two strands of the narrative, the gloomy atmosphere of life with Professor Fisherman and his wife, and the blossoming romance between Melissa and Manuel. Strange and unusual textures are then added by slowing down the tape recordings of certain pieces and the interpolling half-speed recordings of Gamelin procession during the scene at the Opium Den. All right, locations. The central outdoor location is the 15th century Coracera Castle in San Martin de Varagalicias, a town near Madrid. The reception hall of the Fisherman Residence is recognizable as Dr. Orloff's castle in the first film and turns up again eight years later for uh, Jean-Louis Madrid's Jack and Despero de Landres and Jose Maria Estrellata's La La Merdid de Vampiro, 72. It appears most likely that this was a location, probably a museum or carefully restored period building, rather than a standing set, or else surely directors would have moved the ornamentation around a little at the time. 
besides interiors for the Doctor, awful Doctor Orloff were filmed at Bellastro Studios in Madrid, where those were filmed at. It's a different place, okay? Uh, okay. Studio, um, Estudios Bellasteros in Madrid. A connection to these films. Uh, the troubled, tormented Andros, radio controlled and forced to kill, is reminiscent of the symbolist Caesar committing murders as the bidding of an evil mesmerist in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920. An influence already apparent in the awful Dr. Orloff's Morpho, but with the added element here of quasi-scientific mind control. That's correct. Uh, the broody montage that opens the film emulates the style of the first two minutes of... Uh, the sadistic Baron von Klaus, also reprised from the sadistic Baron von Klaus, is the fictional town of Holfen. Melissa is seen reading an issue of Ellie magazine dated January '64, featuring a story called "Where Do You What Do You Get?" by M. Marcel Clouseau, lesser-known brother of Henri Georges Clouseau, director of Les Diaboliques. Les Diaboliques. Other versions. There are three significant different versions of this film in circulation. The extremely rare Spanish original, uh, El Secreto del Dr. Orloff, available among collectors only in a terrible quality recording, apparently obtained by pointing a video camera at a TV transmission. The American international U.S. TV version called Dr. Orloff's Monster, released video only by Something Weird in 1994, and finally, the version I saw, La Maîtresses de Dr. Jekyll, the French version released theatrically by Eurocene and put out on DVD with English and French audio tracks by Aero Films in 2002. Uh, a second U.S. version released by, on DVD by Image as Dr. Orloff's Monster is in fact the same cut as La Maîtresses de Dr. Jekyll. Uh, the, American, <coughs> the American International TV cut of Dr. Orloff's Monster is the closest match to Franco's original, with only two small differences. Freeze phrases a scene under the credits in which we should see Dr. Fisherman walking across a bridge and arriving at the home of Dr. Orloff, and more regrettably, it redubs the last word of the film, changing Andros's anguished why into a rather less bleak thank you. Uh, La Maîtresse's Dr. Jekyll, on the other hand, differs in four significant aspects. After newly minted credits over a static backdrop, the second and third differences involve substantive changes. When Eurocene released Dr. Maîtresse's Dr. Jekyll, they updated certain scenes, just as they had when they turned the original uh, Gritos de la Noche and the more explicit, horrible Dr. Orloff. In terms of both explicit nudity and technique, the new scenes shot for La Maîtresse's de Dr. Jekyll stand out like a sore thumb. Uh, the first occurs early on when Andros attacks a burlesque dancer in her dressing room. In Franco's original cut, Andros enters a jazz club and, while the band plays, walks over to the fully clothed woman sitting at the bar. She's the woman we see earlier accepting Fishman's gift of the necklace, and she's clearly wearing it now. The necklace emits an electronic sound, which only Andros can hear. He approaches and strangles her before walking away unnoticed. The new footage, which I've seen, shot in 65, replaces Hidalgo with a blonde stripper whose sexy routine is far racier than anything in the Spanish cut. After cavorting around showing her ample behind in black stockings, she retires to her dressing room, 
where she's attacked by Andros, or so are meant to think. However, the new footage features a completely different actor standing in for Hugo Blanco. Despite the camera angle attempting to conceal the actor's face, the imposter is clearly visible in a mirror during the strangulation. In the second new scene, Andros attacks a woman as she takes a bath. Um, the murder is asserted between fishermen summoning Cicero to catch Andros and the horse-drawn carriage ride through the woods. Incidentally, the carriage is a deliberate acronym that looks forward to 71's Dracula Prisoner Frankenstein. Once again, a standover for Hugo Blanco is used, uh, and with his reaction cuts called from the original version. And again, the stand his face can be seen quite clearly in one shot, this time as he makes his escape. Although the new edition has the sultry effect of raising the film's body count, it really makes no sense. A uh, female victim is not only unknown to she's unknown to the killer, she's not even wearing a necklace, which is how Andros is supposed to hone in on his victims. It seems that the new murder is spontaneously committed by Andros without Fisherman's order, but if so, why kill the woman? If we'd seen Andros's cabinet hit by a lightning surge, we could at least aperture the murder to a nickel fault, as it is the killing distorts the film's theme by making the otherwise blameless zombie responsible for a gratuitous murder. And note, though lifted, listed as obsession, note, though listed in obsession as running 99 minutes, the TV transmitted version of El Secreto's Del Dr. Orloff clocks in at just over 88 minutes. Alright, so now we're going to do the review parts. Uh, let's see. Okay, I'm going to do uh, Stephen Thor's review first, and then I'll talk about what I saw and thought and uh, the list after that. All right, so what are we looking at here? Good, cool. All right, here we go. Review. Often portrayed, review by Stephen Thor, often portrayed as a mere footnote to the awful Dr. Orloff, the second Orloff in Prince's film, has charms very much its own. It's a beautiful, dreamy work that flirts between melancholy and humor and horror and although it may be quite messy in constructions it's nevertheless distinctive entertaining and full of memorable images true it presents some formidable absurdities with narrative eclipses bordering on the willfully obtuse but the emotional tenor of the piece a haunting mood of sorrow tinged with the paradoxical warmth of a christmas ghost story lingers pleasingly in the mind personally i find it one of the two one of the two or three most enjoyable Franco films of the 60s. Yeah, I I agree with that from what I've seen so far. Uh, things get off to a great start with uh, shots of Hugo Blanco and Marcello Ariato Giorgi artfully poised in deep shadow, staring at the camera, radiating silent trauma. The effect is reminiscent of Igmar Bergman's early 1960s films or Bava's Blood and Black Lace. But while the promise of Scandinavian psychodrama a la Franco may have some of you salivating, it's best to treat this as an accidental treat and move on. What we have is simply a delightful, odd little horror tale, and none the worse for it. Although the original Spanish language, or I'm sorry, although the original Spanish title, El Secreto del Dr. Orloff, and the English language title, Dr. Orloff's Monster, seem to promote a sequel to the awful Dr. Orloff, in truth, the links are slight. For a start, when the film took place in 1912, Dr. Orloff's monster is set... So where the first film took place in 1912, Dr. Orloff's monster is set in the 60s. In addition, the new Dr. Orloff, who appears only twice in the film, is a very different fellow, and not 
just because he's added an extra F to his surname, consulted on his sickbed by the film's true villain, Professor Conrad Fisherman, he discloses a vital secret to one of misguided friendship and trust. You're ambitious, yet you're a dedicated genius. You're not an unscrupulous madman, he murmurs to his colleague. In truth, however, Fisherman is a vengeful, maladjusted Fruit Loop who shouldn't be trusted with scissors, never mind the secret of how to control a reanimated cadaver. The elderly Orloff has lost his forebearer's sharpened wits. The original may have been a psychopath, but at least he was nobody's fool. Dr. Orloff's monster begins carving its own identity when depicting the Fisherman household. Fisherman himself is a callous, self-absorbed patriarch. Consumed with anger and resentment, he lives in a beautiful beautiful bijou castle. But in spite of the elegant medievalism of the property, the atmosphere inside is stifling and deathly. Neither he nor his alcoholic wife, Ingrid... Yes, that really is her... I'm sorry, Inglude. I always say it wrong. Yes, that really is her name can conceal their mutual loathing. He's cold and supercilious. She's a drunken mess, portrayed amusingly, if broadly, by Louisa Sala. Inglude is depressed, hysterical, and self-indulgingly catty, a refugee from a Tennessee Williams play. Um, meanwhile, the couple's only servant, Cicero, is a giggling, capering old flake who picks up on the degenerate mood and runs with it, joking that the dust in the place is too thick to be bothered with cleaning. The more I let it go, the less I feel like sweeping it. Uh, stifling problems and marital discord may be out in the open, but there's a terrible secret hidden away on the top floor. Namely, Andros, Melissa's dead father, reanimated by fishermen for use as a radio-controlled assassin. Andros is a fascinating monster whose sorry existence is the real horror of the story tormented zombie forced to commit acts of murderous brutality by the bitter younger brother he once cuckolded. Beautifully played by Hugo Blanco, he wanders the film like a symbolist locked in an anguished dream. Far from an unfeeling cadaver, he has a tortured emotional life that makes him a sympathetic makes him as sympathetic as the Frankenstein monster. Central to the film is the quasi incestuous longing between Andros and his daughter. Melissa, from whom the obstacles to forbidden desire could not be more profound. She has never even seen a picture of her dead father until the film is underway. Yet within 24 hours, she's cowering in her bed as his mute, staring, featureless features loom over her in the night. Despite his pallor and the reptilian trackery of cracks in his face, his otherwise youthful appearance ensures Melissa's ambiguous fascination. Uh, Hugo Blanco was 27 at the time, and Agnes Spock was 19. The scene in which Andros enters his daughter's bedroom, a dead man unable to speak, his eyes filled with longing, is a standout moment in Franco's early cinema. Um, in contrast to the incestuous undercurrents, the burgeoning romance between Melissa and mock Lothario Manuel brings light and fun into the story. What begins as a cliché, provincial rogue meets frosty city girl, swiftly turns into something more likable as Manuel admits that he's not the womanizer he's pretending to be and Melissa abandons her snootiness. It's a simple enough character arc, but it's well played, nicely scripted, and the actors are young, good-looking, and agreeable. 
When the suspicious and inhospitable Professor Fisherman attempts to get rid of Manuel, you find yourself rooting for Melissa to realize the truth before it's too late. It's also worth noting that Manuel is quite similar to Andros in appearance, which tips an extra Freudian wink to the climax involving an Oedipal battle between Melissa's father and her new lover. So yes, Dr. Orloff's monster has abundant charm. However, it's also a confusing tangle of incoherent themes. Much as I love this film, it fails. It falls to me here. It falls to me here to list the numerous infelicities and absurdities that prevent it from attaining the maximum potential. For instance, who in the household actually knows about the zombie that Fishman keeps upstairs? When Andros malfunctions and storms out of the house one night, the professor chases after him, shouting his name. The commotion wakes Inglude, who asks what he's doing, so how come she doesn't demand to know why he's running outside, calling after his dead brother in the middle of the night? Does she know that the living corpse of her former lover is being kept in the house? Uh, if so, the idea is not sustained. Then there's Cicero, who Fisherman takes with him to track down the errant zombie. The servant is unfazed at the sight of the creature, so he clearly knows the truth, yet his knowledge does not feed into the story. And what about Fisherman himself? Who, what's his motive for sending Andros to murder young women? That's what I was wondering. His beef is with his adulterous wife and his cuckolding brother, having killed one and driven the other to a lifetime of drunken despair. Uh, surely he's wrecked enough damage. Perhaps if a point was made that the women he seduces were all mar married, the murderers might make sense as the petty destructiveness of a spurned husband. But there's nothing to indicate any of this, so Fisherman's choice of victims seems dismayingly random. Worst of all, in a badly blocked scene early on, Melissa walks unannounced into Fisherman's lab until he ignores the partially visible features of Andrew staring silently into the far corner. And I saw that too. But yeah, back to uh, Fisherman. I was thinking that, uh, you know, it's almost just like he's like Jack the Ripper or he's just like a psychopath. He just wants to kill and just uh, hear the screams and he kind of gets off on it. Like that's kind of his reason. Because I was, yeah, I was thinking that too. Like what's his motive behind these people, these women that he's killing? What's his, his, his motive or his passion or his beef? And that's kind of what I got. He just did it because he's just a fucking psycho and that's what he wants to do. Um, all right, so, uh, let's see, okay, um, as a footnote, the COD scene, the COD science is especially daft, even for the sort of film, Orloff suggests to Fisherman that a zombie could be made to move with ultrasonic sounds in combination with Pavlonian behavioral techniques, however, when Fisherman switches on his sonic device for the first time, Andrews follows him in a mere hand gesture. No system or reward or punishment is seen to be applied, so the whole idea seems absurd. Um, let's see, there it is. Perhaps more peculiar of all is the highly convenient, not to mention the illogical revival of the terminally ill Dr. Orloff. As first seen at the start of the film, Orloff is supposedly on his deathbed, offering his wisdom to Fisherman because he knows he's about to die. However, in a much later scene, thrown away so casually he could forget it for missing it, Orloff listens to his wife reading aloud from the newspaper about the rash of murders and subsequently pops up as an anonymous voice on the phone, tipping off the police as they hunt for the killer. Oh, that was his voice. Okay, I thought it was uh, Fisherman's wife. Um, I advise you to 
test those necklaces to see if they're ultrasonic. Question of fishermen. So after a miraculous off-screen recovery, Orloff has turned police snitch. What disappointing corruption of the family bloodline. To return to the positive, the seasonal holiday setting works beautifully. This is a Christmas horror film of sorts. Yeah, I, was, I had written that in my notes. So yeah, if you're looking for a new Christmas movie to watch, Dr. Orloff's Monster. It's a Christmas movie. They talk about Christmas quite a bit in it. Christmas is part of the deal of it, and it takes place at Christmas time. So yeah, it's a Christmas movie. Um, this is a Christmas horror film of sorts, even if the horror is acknowledged, holidays acknowledged only so that the various characters can curse about it or ruin the good cheer of the bad vibes. Festivities may be may not be a cornerstone of the drama as they are in, say, the American Christmas slashers of the 70s and 80s. But Dr. Orloff's monster has a yuletide mood in the corner of its eye which bestows a warm glow upon otherwise melancholy story. It also enhances the film's most poetic scene. A poor, tormented Andros visits his own grave. Franco, aided by cinematographer Alfonso Nueva, creates a here mournfully elegant sequence as memorable as anything in the silent horror cinema with Andros alone suspended between life and death, gazing helplessly at his own gravestone against a background of desolate winter countryside. This and other scenes emphasizing seasonal chill help to bring the virtues of the classic ghost story to this tale of familiar, familial specters. Yes, a specter from your family. All right, so, okay, my notes. Um, yeah, film 10, Fear or Desire. Uh, I'd say... Desire of the girl to uh, figure out if that's her father. Of course, the desire of the love for Manuel. Um, the desire for the father to see his daughter. Um, and um, not really fear, just the fear of the victims. But that's not, that's, you know, whatever. Understandable. Uh, like I said, this is a Christmas movie. Um, I liked the... Uh, Monster the mention of the happens at the middle flashback. Yeah, the flashback setting set set up in the beginning is good. Uh, where the shots of the bed screens, uh, the the bed springs. He does that later on with Lena Romay in a few films. Uh, he uses those shots, and also later on too, a few films ahead of here, he shoots at the bed springs, which is like Ninety Nine Women, I believe, has some bed spring shots. And uh, yeah, so that's a cool thing that he does. And anyway. Uh, yeah, so we have also uh, the French version, refers to him as Jess Frank, and there's uh, references to David Kuhn, of course, K-H-U-N-E. Um, it's cool how the Orloff passes down the knowledge to Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Fisherman. Um, I liked that uh, Andros's scarred face, like the next film of Dr. Z, I guess it's uh, Dr. Z's daughter had this scarred face when she gets burned and it's kind of the same look as uh, Dr. Orloff's monster, which is cool. Uh, let's see, or as uh, uh, Andros, I should say. Um, one thing I liked about this too with the, the whole radio-controlled um, deal with the sound and stuff, it's really just simple, practical special effects. Lights, buttons, switches, little boxes and stuff, but it, it makes sense, establishes a lot. His simple lab the simple things, it, it just, in, in lack of budget or the simplicity of it, it still registers the same effect to me. And I can believe it as much as something that's way more expensive in, in budget uh, in effects. So, yeah, definitely that uh, works in that's favor. 
Um, I liked uh, the driving scenes. They have really great locations you see driving all through. Um, going back to the family again, going to the woman to get her inheritance is like later on uh, Virgin on Living Dead and, of course, before this, Baron von Klaus and numerous other films he does later on. That's one of his themes is uh, the young woman, the young beautiful girl going back to an estate, um, also like Dracula's daughter later on, like a beautiful girl going to a state and uh, going into a past with either dead people or people that were dead or are dead, ghosts, um, mad scientists, monsters, whatever, and um, staying there over a few days and either getting the money or getting out before something happens or being killed or whatever the situation happens inside. But yeah, basically going through the situation with her family members who she's maybe met once or has never met and the clashing of the different styles and that. So yeah, that's always a, uh, a good situation with that. Um, all right. Um, I liked, uh, Cicero, the servant it seems like a role that Franco played later on. And of course, Virgin Mother Living dead and other films, kind of the bizarre, older, crazy man. Um, let's see. Um, uh, do, 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 do. What else do I want to say before I go to? Uh, oh yeah, that the graveyard scene which they had wrapped about um, Andros looking at his grave. That long shot is such a beautiful shot. Probably like one of the ten best Jess Franco sequences of just beautiful shots. Just you could see the the uh, landscape, the background, and all the, the, the open graveyard and the city behind them, and just such a beautiful sequence. One of the most beautiful scenes I've seen in a long time. And in this film, it's definitely amazing. Um, what else do we have? Uh, oh, yeah, too, Andros. Like, he kind of reminded me of, uh, of course, you know, this is like a Frankenstein, but also the way he was slower, controlled, robotic zombie was kind of like Michael Myers or Jason. But more, more like Michael Myers, he reminded me a lot um, of this, which was kind of cool. So if you like the Halloween films, it's kind of got a little theme of that, you know. Um, and also, too, I liked how Franco was hitting the bad married life theme. I wonder if he was going through some problems with his wife or what. But uh, the marital discord is a pretty good theme that he runs with quite a bit for a while. And uh, different films, he goes back to it quite a bit. Um, yeah, and then later on I said, like, uh, my thing is open-winded. Why does he kill? What's the reason between Dr. Jekyll or Dr. Fisherman wanting to kill all the time? And that was what I had kind of figured out. Uh, and it's also, too, it's interesting that they have the theory of the robots, and then he does a film about two films later, Attack of the Robots, which uh, uses kind of the same mind control theme. So, yeah, so he's kind of recycling already this early in his career. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely a great film, so definitely check it out. And uh, it's repeated much, many more times throughout his career. All right, let's go through the film list of Franco List. Franco List. Franco List. Franco List. Franco List. All right, Franco List. Uh, let's see. Number one, Body of Water. Yes, there is a Body of Water. Uh, the lake, when they're looking for uh, Andros, Dr. Jekyll with Cicerone. You see that lake there, and then also there's a, a giant fountain later on, and like a little, little other like pond or something. So there's a few little Body of Waters. Uh, number two and three, sailboat and boats. The only boats, this is pretty much a landlocked movie. The only sailboats or boats you see are in uh, pictures in um, the uh, aunt's room, Eluna or whatever, um, in her room, or Air Luna. So there, it's funny because 
always boats and sailboats are always uh, dreams or freedom and she's trapped in that house so there's no sailboats in this film there's no freedom there's no escape so it's all just a memory on the wall which is kind of a cool theme i don't know if he caught that but subliminally and uh i think symbolically that's what it figures out to be for this so interesting uh okay number four palm trees negative didn't really see those in this film Number five, jungle sound effects or th- animal sound effects. Yeah, the very beginning when you see uh, the castle um, for the first time, uh, you hear of like a when you first see the um, fisherman. I'm gonna call him Doctor Jekyll. Doctor Jekyll's castle. You hear the uh, sound effect of birds that's laid over that scene, and that's about it. Just that one time. Uh, number six, chained up person. Not really chained up. Uh, Andros is in a tank, but he's not chained. He doesn't chain anybody up. He strangles people. They have the necklace, carries him back. No, not really. No, no chained up people. Number seven, dance scenes on stage slash stripping. Uh, yes and no. Not really stripping. Well, there's a scene with the lady in the G-string. Um, but yeah, definitely dance scenes on stage. Uh, kind of entertainers writhing around on the floor or taking off clothes, but not all the way. So yeah, definitely that. Um, let's see, that's number seven, and we definitely had that. Uh, yeah, with Jess Franco on the piano in that sequence. Um, and then that leads us to number eight, club scenes dancing. We had a lot of the club scenes, the bar, uh, like a bar scene, uh, which is always bar scenes, uh, taverns with people entertaining in every Jess Franco film, it seems like. So yeah, this one definitely the same as well. There's about three or four different bar scenes where they go to hang out and watch. Uh, entertainment, either a, a band playing or a woman singing or taking off her clothes. Usually that's the three sequences. Uh, number eight, or that's number eight. Number nine, jazz music. Like I said, yes, very much so in this film. Just is jazz pianist in this, and there's quite a bit of jazz all the way through. Ten and eleven, excessive zooms, out of focus shots, negative on this. Early films, number ten, he's tight and controlled, so negative on those. Uh, Thirteen, mind control theme. Of course, that's all this film is. Yep, mind control for sure. It's got Andros under mind control, and uh, the radio deal controls his body, and can he kills. Um, and 14, magic tongue scenes, negative, no Lena, no magic tongue. 15, red lights in black and white, uh, so I'd say no, none of that. 16, sheepskin rug or masturbation with a letter C item, negative. That's Lena territory, so we're not in there. 17, Mad Scientist. Yes, we have Dr. Orloff and we have Professor Fisherman. So we have two Mad Scientists in this. 18, Fish Tank Shots. No Fish Tank Shots. We have a tank in which Andros is kept in and a couple rabbit cages, but that's about it. 19, Talking Parrot, Talking Animals. Negative. Uh, Number 20, End Credits. Yes or no? Yes, it says Finn. Uh, so let's see, 21 handwritten notes or handwritten signs, anything like that. Didn't really catch that in this film. Uh, nothing that stood out or kept me going. Um, 22 spiral staircase shot. No, none of that. There's a staircase in the castle going upstairs, but just a standard one that you see in a few films. So, but no spiral staircase shots. 23 inept cops. I'd say yes, because... Even though an inspector keeps sneezing and they investigate the boxer who had really nothing to do with the killing, 
they got the clues because Orloff called them and snitched, and everything they got was from other people that just happened to volunteer all the information. So yeah, they basically stumbled through it from because of other people's help. Uh, Twenty-four belly chains. That's not yet not yet going. So no belly chains. Uh, kink list in this. A uh, little bit of Oedipal things with Andros and his daughter, which Thrower talked about. Uh, and then the father, daughter, and then her new husband, the fighting between the two. That's about it on that, I think. And uh, maybe uh, necrophilia. And uh, what else we have? Maybe opium den scene. Um, and um, cuckolding, maybe. And uh, that's about it in this one. Uh, okay, number 26. Um, oh, yeah, this is a new one I've, I've come up with. I've noticed the last few films, I keep seeing it. And as I go through, look at pictures, and something I kind of skimmed over. But Jess Franco films, there's always great headboards. And great headboards is like a thing I've been getting into. A friend of mine brought up one of a headboard, and I've been thinking about headboards. And, uh, yeah, this film is a fucking killer headboard in uh, the ants room. And I think in two or three other rooms, there's really nice carved, like, flowers and stuff. So, very cool headboards. So, yeah, that's a little shout-out there for that for the headboard fan. Uh, talk about waterbeds and all that stuff, watching uh, licorice pizza, so headboards. But yeah, that's that. All right, so uh, it's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode because I kind of combined it all together without bumper music and all that, so kind of ran it to uh, deal like that. But uh, still looking at it just under an hour, so we're still good. All right, uh, so yeah, this was Dr. Orloff's Monster. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a good film, black and white, really great shots, great cinematography, good pacing, um, good actors, cool monster, cool setting. Yeah, definitely check it out. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's not one of my favorite favorites, but I really did like it, so definitely a good film. One of the better films from Franco in the 60s. Film number 10, a strong one. Uh, Diabolical Dr. Z and this are, are really two strong back-to-back films, which is the next one, and uh, good stuff as well. Alrighty, uh, so if you like this film, please uh, download all the episodes, uh, subscribe to the podcast so you get them delivered every Wednesday morning. When they drop, they'll be in your inbox and ready for you to listen. Uh, Tell a friend, tell people about the Franco Observer podcast. Uh, Let the podcast grow, let more people know about it. I always um, appreciate having more listeners and more subscribers. It makes me uh, happy to see more people listen every month, so it's always good. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, please do at uh, FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. And you can also find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and on Instagram with the Instagram page, uh, the Franco Observer Podcast. Find us there, and uh, we do content daily, weekly, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, check it out. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, we also have a donation button. Um, really, nobody's done it yet, but if you want to drop a dollar, five bucks, or ten bucks, or whatever you want to drop, man, one time, all time, doesn't matter, feel free to do it. Uh, I'm working all the time, and I'm a starving artist, so, hey, you know, you can always use a little donation. So if you like this show, and if you like all the uh, 75, 76-plus episodes that I've given you for free, if you want to drop me some coin, I would appreciate it, so... So yeah, that's that. Uh, let's see, give you all the deals. You know what to do. You know how much we love Franco and you too, too. Um, oh yeah, the opium den scene. I like the opium den scene too in this film. It was pretty cool to see that. Uh, kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, it was kind of cool to see the Dr. Jekyll. I was 
very Jekyll and Hyde with the Stevenson thing of him doing the drugs and having the other side and uh, instead of him turning into the killer, having a person that follows him around to do all the murdering. So, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a nice, nice touch. Franco was kind of taking the gothic horrors and kind of updating them to the uh, jazz age at this time where he's mixing the gothic and the old stuff with the new and the jazz age. So, almost like an Adam Age vampire, you know. So, yeah, definitely cool. I like it. Good styles. So, Alrighty, well, uh, I think that's going to wrap up this episode, episode 75. Wow, already, that's good. 75 episodes down, that's uh, good. And uh, 25 more and we'll have 100, so 100 episodes will be pretty badass. Didn't think I'd do 100 of these, so 25 away. We'll see if I can do it. Hope so. But yeah, this was film 10, Dr. Orloff's Monster. We all got a monster, so if we're good, we're all doctors, and uh, we have our little monsters that uh, help us through. So, all right. Buenas noches. Mm-hmm.